resident witch Miranda and I am your resident wino crystal (laughs) and today we have a fun one for you we're going to be talking a little bit about vampires sorry I think I have a gnat in my wine (laughs) you oh dear I have a gnat in my wine yeah don't drink that okay uh okay I think I'm good now okay (laughs) Um, yes, vampires. (laughs) (laughs) And it's going to be a mix of things because it's not just stories. It's going to be the past and the present. So get ready for some info in your face. Yeah, I think it might not be your typical vampire episode, um, but I think it will still be quite interesting um, these stories and stuff we have to, to share with you. Yes. And um, Miranda, would you like to begin us? Be- would you like to start us off this evening? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I would love to begin, begin us. us. <laughs> okay. So whenever you think of vampires, immediately, obviously, you think of Dracula and Nos, Nos, oh my god, my brain, Nosferatu. Nosferatu. Yeah. But then also, my, the next thing I think about is Vlad the Impaler, which is what Dracula, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula was based off of. So I was like... Such a good story. Yeah. The Dracula story? No, the Vlad. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm so glad you're talking about Vlad. <laughs> um, so what I found quite interesting about Vlad the Impaler was when, you know, in his youth, he was actually a, um, what do they call those? Like, he, he was a prisoner, but they weren't holding him in a prison. They were just like, you know, this foreign or the enemy country was holding hostage your your heirs or whatever, but they still taught them arithmetic and, you know, they schooled them. Like, I don't know. But, like, his sibling was eventually like, yeah, you know what? I kind of agree with our captors, right? But Vlad was like, I am never going to agree with you guys and, you know, ultimately just continue to, like, cultivate his his rage towards his uh, captors. But I thought that was interesting. I didn't realize he spent a good portion of his life, you know, as a sort of, like, prisoner I'm not sure if I knew that either. Yeah. Um, But I'm going to... I digress. I'm going to start back at the beginning. So, obviously, we know that he was born in, like, 1400s, like 1430-ish. And he was part of a house. And I'm going to try to pronounce this name. Draculesti, a noble family that ruled in the area on and off for, like, several decades. So... Vlad became the ruler. Hmm? Oh, I was going to say, so that's where the name Dracula came from. Yeah. So apparently I know much less about this than I thought I did. <laughs> what did you know? <laughs> well, you know what? Um, 
I mean, let's not go there. Let's just you go ahead. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um. Anyway, so he became the ruler of. Um. I know I'm going to say this name wrong too, but like Wallachia. <laughs> in 1456, but he was deposed. Sure. Yeah, he was deposed after only two months of being the ruler. But he regained his power back a couple years later, and he ruled for several years after that. So, during his rule, this is where he became known for his brutal methods of punishment. So you know, like the impalement. <laughs> but in addition to the <laughs> impalement, he also had people burned alive and. And boiled or skinned alive, it was yeah, quite barbarous. <laughs> His reign and stinky. Oh yeah. His <laughs> reign was definitely marked by like、um, political turmoil. As he was struggling to maintain his power against both the Ottoman Empire and the rival factions within his own, you know, his own land. With that being said, with him. Having such terrible and barbaric methods of, you know, punishment, and how he had a thirst for blood because, you know, your bloodthirsty vampires were creating Dracula from the Vlad the Impaler. You know, it just kind of went hand in hand there. His association is obviously like well well documented.、Um, well, at least in my opinion, is well documented in the vampire lore. But in other people's opinion, it's not well documented. But many believe that the connection originated in in the nineteenth century, whenever Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, and this novel obviously helped popularize the idea of vampires, and has definitely been influential in shaping everyone's modern perception of Vlad the Impaler. Obviously, you know Bram Stoker's Dracula was a quote, fictional character that just was you know based off of this bloodthirsty ruler. But interesting about Vlad is his descendants, which I didn't know about this part. Okay, I'm moving on into Prince Charles. You know the Prince Charles that we know now. It, you know, Great Britain. He okay. Well, he revealed that he was actually related to Vlad the Impaler. Wait, what? Yeah. He he. What? Yeah. Yep. He's related to Lad the Impaler, and it's quite interesting because I keep on saying it's quite interesting. It's quite interesting. Take a shot every time you hear me say that. <laughs> But, <laughs> um, he. There was some of conspiracy theories saying that Prince Charles is a vampire. You know, like they think all celebrities. What is that? The dogs. I I could have sworn I heard a man talking.、Oh. <laughs> so. For Prince Charles, not only did he reveal that he was related to Vlad the Impaler, some of our conspiracy theorists in the world argue that the British royal family, including that Prince Charles, has this supposed lineage to ancient bloodlines and secret societies that are associated with vampirism, and they claim、What? that these bloodlines grant them supernatural powers and longevity. I mean, What? how long did our our beautiful queen, you know, live? Also, <gasps> other conspiracy theorists say that he's a vampire too because of his physical appearance.、Um, some proponents of this conspiracy theory point to Prince Charles's physical features as evidence of his vampirism. 
They think that his facial structure, which is like, you know, the high cheekbones and receding hairline, resemble the typical vampire characteristics portrayed in like folklore and movies, you know, like the probably the longer nose, high cheekbones, sunken in eyeballs with the high widow's peak. I'm looking him up (laughs) right now. Um, Oh, shit. (laughs) <laughs> he really could be a vampire. Um, also, apparently Prince Charles has a reclusive nature, and he lives a relatively private lifestyle, and he's um, he's limited his public appearances. So they're thinking, hmm, maybe that his reclusiveness allows him to conceal his true identity as a vampire and avoid the public scrutiny that would come along with it. Holy shit, you blew my mind. <laughs> okay, I'm not done with this yet, okay? So symbolism and rituals, let's think about that for a second. So conspiracy theorists often analyze the symbols and rituals that are associated with the British royal family, and they interpret them as evidence of vampiric practices. They may claim that um, certain royal ceremonies, emblems, or even clothing choices hold hidden meanings related to vampirism. However, um, I did not dive deep into figuring figuring out what those symbols were um i maybe might do it in a future time but i just wanted to know all the reasons why um but anyway the last one is that there are some alleged connections between um, prince charles to various secret societies or occult practices suggesting that these associations provide further support of his supposed vampiric culture so obviously, this is all probably just conspiracy theories, just a load of baloney. But how cool would it be? <laughs> or like, man, our world as we know, it's just so weird if that were true, you know? Well, I just Googled, <laughs> is, is King Charles um, a vampire? Or Prince Charles. And, oh, yeah. and what'd you get? And... And it says that he owns property in Transylvania. Yeah, that's because he's related to Vlad the Impaler. He has the lineage there. He still has property there, according to CornwallLive.com. Mm-hmm. What? Isn't that, yeah, isn't that crazy? Holy shit. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole looking into this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously there are way more details about um, his... Wait, is he, is he, have I been saying Prince? Is he King now? King Charles? And I've been saying Prince Charles this whole It's time. King Charles, and people are going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm, how do you not know this? Well, I'm sorry, guys. Because we don't live there. The, the, the last I re- <laughs> um, heard of him, he was a prince, but I understand now that, uh, anyway, again, yes, I am sorry. I am an ignorant American. Please forgive me. Um, It says no. late mother, Queen. Elizabeth II was a Hungarian countess and also born and raised in Transylvania in the 19th century. Indeedy. Holy macaroni. (laughs) But, you know, believe what you may. Um, I just think this is an interesting tidbit. And I had no idea that this was a conspiracy theory that people were like, legit oh i'm gonna research and look into this and come up with all of these different evidences for you know how he can be you know 
a vampire. Okay, so I'm going to now talk about things that happened a little bit farther back in time, and I'm going to talk about the idea of the New England vampire. And I don't know if anybody has heard of the New England vampire, but apparently it was something that was such a big deal over in New England, of course. Um, so... The historical context of the New England vampire and the post-mortem rituals that were performed on the body are what is bringing conspiracy to the story. So, during the late 19th century, tuberculosis was a major health concern in New England, and many people believed that the disease was caused by the undead. So it was thought that those who died of tuberculosis could return from the dead as a vampire and spread the disease among the living. As a result of this But they didn't really fear, know it was tuberculosis, did they? No, they didn't have that, like, name. I think they just called it the consumption or something like that <clears throat> back then. Um, so because of this fear, people would often exhume the bodies of suspected vampires and then perform post-mortem rituals such as burning the heart or even driving a stake through their body so they would prevent them from returning as vampires and infecting more people with um, tuberculosis or the sickness. So the New England vampire particularly that I'm talking about, he was buried in Griswold, Connecticut in 1854. So when the body was exhumed in the 1990s, Researchers found evidence of the post-mortem ritual that I already mentioned, including like scorch marks on his ribs and sternum and a large rock placed at the skull cavity. So I'm about to get a little technical here, okay? Um, the researchers used mitochondrial DNA testing to identify the individual and Ooh. they, yeah, and, um, and found that they were a distant cousin of the family that owned the farm where they were buried. The individual had a genetic mutation that made them more susceptible to tuberculosis, which was likely the cause of their deaths. Like, the, this particular family had a lot of deaths. This idea of the New England vampire is part of, like, a larger trend using modern scientific techniques to investigate the origins of vampire folklore. And in recent DNA, um, in recent DNA, in recent years, researchers have used um, DNA analysis to study the remains of all of these suspected vampires from around the world. And they have found many of them had diseases like tuberculosis or um, porphyria that may have contributed to those vampire legends. Essentially, this whole idea is like, because I kind of want to discover where maybe all these vampire folklore has come had came, come from, but the fact yes. that like many of these like oh my god they're vampires they're vampires all over the world was because of this common factor of tuberculosis, and you know that was something that spread pretty fast and had some pretty gruesome you know ailments because I believe that's the part that's the one where you cough up blood right and yes and blood vampires you know. And it, it just like that pivotal moment of that body of the New England vampire being exhumed in the 1990s just kind of like gave us a scientific reason behind all of this like folklore. Um, now I'm going to talk about a specific vampire that was also in the States. 
and she is known as the Rhode Island Vampire. Her name is Mercy Brown, and this is her story. So, this occurred in the late 19th century in Exeter, Rhode Island, and it has definitely become the subject of numerous books and articles and other works of popular culture. Mercy Brown was the daughter of a local farmer named George Brown, and she died of, you guessed it, tuberculosis in 1892, along with several other members of her family. Um, in the months that followed her death, some of the local townspeople began to believe that Mercy was a vampire and that she was responsible for the deaths of her family members that, you know, the ones that died after her, obviously. So the villagers believed that Mercy's body had not de decomposed properly and that her heart was still filled with blood. And in order to prevent her from rising from the grave and attacking the living, they decided to exhume her body and perform a ritual to destroy her heart. Um, the ritual involved, you know, burning the heart on a nearby rock and feeding the ashes to her sick brother. I don't know why they thought this would be a good idea. Um, <laughs> Who came up I don't with know. That? <laughs> so he was believed to have contracted tuberculosis for mercy, obviously. After the ritual... Oh, but you know what? Hmm. <laughs> Anytime anyone else would have been like, hey, you should burn someone's heart and take the ashes and make this person drink it to heal them. They'd be like, witch, burn them. Right? <laughs> so are they a vampire <laughs> or are they a witch? I don't know. <laughs> right? But it totally makes sense here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So after that ritual was performed, the villagers thought that the epidemic had subsided. They thought that they were safe and that they successfully banished the evil spirit of Mercy Brown. Were they right? No. But the story <laughs> of Mercy Brown's alleged vampirism has become a crazy cultural legend in the area, and it has been cited as an example of the fear and superstition that characterized many rural communities in the 19th century in America. So um, while there's no real scientific basis for the belief in vampires in this story, other than the tuberculosis connection, the story of Mercy Brown and other similar cases continues to fascinate and intrigue many, many people. So I am still, I'm honestly still kind of confused why people thought that you die of tuberculosis and then your family members get sick and then they get sick and then someone else dies. You get sick, someone else dies. So with Mercy Brown specifically, I could only imagine that as people were becoming sick with tuberculosis, the sicker they got that they started like hallucinating, right? And because they were already afraid of the vampires and the dead coming to um, give them more sickness, they're like, oh, no, I'm sick, and this is why I've seen the devil, Mercy Brown, or the <laughs> demon, or whatever, you know? Uh, and that's how it just kept on going, like, oh, did you see her? Did you see her, young Timmy, when you were cursed with this disease? Yes, Poppy! <laughs> I did! <laughs> Yes, Poppy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Um, and then. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know how to respond. Okay, <laughs> oh, okay Poppy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay. 
Um, and okay. I know you have a lot of stories about quote unquote real vampires and maybe some scientific evidence to um, back up the claim for vampirism, but maybe not in the way that, um, you know, we view it. So, right. One of the things I wanted to bring to, I guess, to preface that before you begin is um, one of the ideas that people might be vampires is that they have sensitivity to light, to the sunlight. And mm -hmm. there's a legit, I guess, disease or genetic mutation. I'm not exactly sure what you want to call it. That makes it really hard for people to be out in the sun because they burn or blister. And I'm one of those people. However, what? I don't, yeah, I don't know if you knew that, but like, I, I obviously don't have a bad a case as like other people, but there are certain spots or areas on my body that I have to make sure that are covered or like sunblocked covered or whatever, because it won't burn. It will literally just pop up blisters. Like there will be no warning. Like the rest of my body wouldn't even have a sunburn, but those parts on my body will be blistered. Because you're part vampire. Yeah, Duh. because I'm part vampire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, people being anemic and needing more blood or, you know, they need to eat. Oh, like, yeah. I'm going to yeah. get to all that. Yeah. Um, so I just thought, I was like, hey, you know, there's some evidence and I'm and I'm partially part of that evidence of a sun sensitivity. And I remember when I was a teenager, because I kept on getting these like mystery bumps on my body and blisters and it was painful. And even weirdly, sometimes I would get them when I got really sick, too. Huh. Yeah. Did they ever find out what it was? Well, they told me that it was just the sensitivity to the sun. And he was, the doctor was like, I'm sorry to tell you this, but it looks like you might be a vampire. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm like, you can't be serious. And he was like, well, no. But then he explained it to me. You know, oh, that's great. Of what it was. Um, that is great. Yeah, so it's really awful. And these blisters look like herpes. And it's not like it's even on my mouth or anything like that. It's just parts of my body. So it just looks like I have Your these... butt. Is it your butt? No, because the butt doesn't get any sun. <laughs> Unless you're in California, man. Can't even... Well, you are in California. Like, yeah, I am in California. <laughs> I don't expose my butt to the sun. Dang. Oh, my gosh. There's so... So many thong bikinis in California. Not on my butt. Just out and about in the middle of family-oriented locations. And so you know what? Sometimes you'll even be like, oh, my God, like the front butt. <laughs> so you can see that. And like, <laughs> how how is the bathing suit <laughs> keeping all that in? Because like one wrong move and you got a lip hanging <laughs> out. Oh, my God. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> back to vampires. <laughs> so for my part of this episode, I'm going to talk about vampires through time. <laughs> I'll start with vampires recorded in history and move on to the vampires of today. And then I will finish with some possible medical explanations of vampirism. Past vampire stories. Johan and and I'm sorry, but the the names of people and places are very difficult. So I'll just do my best. Johan Weikard von Valvasor. 
a 17th century natural historian from Carniola. <laughs> he recorded the beliefs of people from the Istrian Peninsula. They told him about a certain kind of vampire called Strigon. These vampires were once human sorcerers who drank the blood of children while they were alive. After the these Strigon vampires died, they, the sorcerers became the undead Strigon and would wander around their home villages at midnight, knocking on doors. And it was said that a knocking on a household's door by the Strigon would lead to someone dying within a few days. Mm. Villagers believed that anyone who died during that period was probably eaten by the undead creature. Villager, which I was, when I read that, I was like, hold up a second. What if they're dead, but they're not gone? You still think somebody ate them? Mm, okay. <laughs> Did they die and disappear? That's true. <laughs> Maybe they had bite marks. Uh, I don't know. But villagers also believed Strigon would quietly sneak into their beds and sleep with their women. <laughs> Furthermore, <laughs> Valvasor noted that the Strigon had a preference for young and beautiful widows. This is where Jor Grando comes into play. Jor Grando resided in the small Istrian village of Kringa. Very little information is available regarding his life, and it is believed that he was a typical resident of the village. So he's just a regular old villager. Following his death in 1656, Father Giorgio, the village priest, buried him in the local cemetery. Soon after, the villagers claimed to have witnessed Grando's ghost roaming round the village and knocking on doors of specific homes. Jor Grando, the Strigon, terrorized his village for 16 years. Because if you remember, when somebody get the door gets knocked on, somebody dies. Mm -hmm. So for 16 years, he's knocking and killing. He's knocking people off, man. Who is doing that? Dang. Jor Grando. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> He was eventually defeated in 1672 when the mayor gathered a group of brave young men to hunt him down. After finding that Grando's corpse was still intact, which oh. I was thinking, unless it's been a really cold 16 years, mm -hmm. the fact his body's still intact is crazy. Yeah. But the men attempted to rid the town of the vampire by invoking the name of Jesus Christ, but this failed. The men then attempted to pierce Grando's stomach with a wooden stake, but that too was unsuccessful. So maybe it was a really cold 16 years and he was like ice. Or even like, I don't know. you know, the bog people. Like, it's like the situation is just so perfect that it mummifies, you know. Oh, hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, one of the men beheaded Grando with an axe and blood surged forth. The men then covered Grando's grave, ending his reign of terror. The next story, the Alnwick Castle story, dates back to the time before the word vampire even existed. William of Newburgh, an English chronicle 
an English chronicler, recorded the events and told the tale of a man who died while spying on his adulterous wife from the roof of their house. I guess he fell off the roof. After this death, after his death, he became bleh. <laughs> he, that's what he be. I'm going to <laughs> yes. suck your blood. Bleh. Bleh, bleh, bleh. Oh. I do not go. Um, bleh, bleh, bleh. <laughs> oh my goodness. What was that on? Was that like in the shadows or something? No, I think it was Hotel Transylvania. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, okay, where was I? Oh, after his death, he came back to life as a revenant, a decomposing corpse that roamed around and, and spread sickness. When the priest and his followers discovered the vampire's grave, they exhumed it and punctured the body with a shovel. The warmth of blood that was that emerged confirming their assumption that the creature was indeed consuming the blood of the living. They burned the body to put an end to the attacks. Huh. And this story made me think of people with leprosy. Mm-hmm. Like there because they said that his decomposing corpse roamed around and spread sickness. Oh, you know what? I can see that. Yeah, because mm -hmm. they're like they're alive and walking around, but they can resemble the undead with their rotting flesh. Mm -hmm. So it made me think of leprosy. But um, now on to my last story before I go on to modern vampire communities, which very interesting. Take a <laughs> shot. <laughs> you started that, Miranda. I did. I did. <laughs> Highgate vampire in London's Highgate Cemetery in six. In 1969, so yes, in 1969, that really was not that long ago, a series of odd occurrences begin with the discovery of deceased animals that displayed neck wounds and were entirely bloodless. Witnesses claimed that they saw a tall, dark figure exuding a sinister energy that had a hypnotizing gaze. One account described a man becoming disoriented and hopelessly lost while attempting to depart the cemetery, only to find himself confronted by the terrifying Highgate vampire who stared him down, immobilizing him on the spot. Following negative press about these incidents, the graveyard was later visited by a group of self-proclaimed vampire hunters. Okay. In almost the 70s, y'all. There were vampire hunters. They trampled through the cemetery and dug up several graves. In response, conservationists advocated for the cemetery to be closed during the night. Eventually, sightings and reports of the vampire petered out over time. So that is the past. Now let's look at our current times. Our present. Yes. The ghost of vampire present. <laughs> Maven Lore is a specialist in crafting personalized acrylic fangs in New Orleans, 
where locals call him the King of Vampires. Although he wasn't initially thrilled about the title, he has come to accept it. Being a vampire goes beyond having pointy teeth and consuming blood. Being part of, of the vampire community in New Orleans means working together towards shared success. So for I'm them, these, mm. just life in general. This, this is fascinating to me. For them, the success of one individual leads to the success of all, while a single failure affects the whole group. Simply put, they are in this together. Today, there are people who identify as vampires among us, but they are not like the vampires we see in media. Real vampires can practice vampirism in many ways, such as feeding off of, off of energy or sexual encounters. They don't always have fangs and don't follow typical vampire stereotypes. The real vampires out there often face misconceptions and are not understood by non-vampires. Unlike fictional vampires, real-life vampires aren't limited to being nocturnal or having to follow traditional vampire behavior. I'm sure we've all heard of the expression energy vampire too growing up. Like why yes. even like I've never really considered it, but like when people are like, oh my gosh, that person's such an energy vampire, like they suck the energy out of you. It's like the people who you don't want to hang out with is because they're so exhausting and we all have one of those in our life. Don't deny yes, it. Yes, it's called our children. oh that's funny (laughs) oh no god i love them i love them but any parent will tell you they know how to suck the energy right out of you oh man um also have you ever seen what is it called is it called into the shadows or it's called what we do in the shadows yeah what we do in the shadows yes have you watched that Uh uh-huh it's so great. And the energy vampire guy, like, <laughs> so if you haven't yeah. seen it, they're all vampires. And it's hilarious. This show's so great. Everybody must watch it. <laughs> but there's, they're all regular vampires, except for stereotypical, I guess. But there's one that is an energy vampire. And he pretty much just looks like a really, like, middle-aged nerdy guy with no personality whatsoever. And he just sucks the energy out of everybody. And he's hilarious. Mm -hmm. And I remember one episode he had a showdown with another energy vampire who started working. (laughs) Yes. That was great. Oh, my gosh. That show is great. Okay. Today's vampires consist of people from different backgrounds who want to be a part of a community. To be a vampire means to embrace one's individuality and break away from traditional norms. So some quote-unquote vampires are just people that are trying to break away from traditional norms and embrace individuality and who people truly are to embrace each other and encourage each other to be yourself. But there's so many different kinds of groups of vampires. So John Edgar Browning, who's a professor of liberal arts at the Savannah College of Art and Design, has extensively studied vampire communities in New Orleans and Buffalo. Browning believes that the concept of human vampires can help us break free from restrictive and oppressive labels that cause marginalization, unlocking unlimited potential. Therefore, these vampires can be seen as a form of therapy for us. This makes... 
it makes sense to me because society is hateful towards uh, so many different groups of people, different lifestyles and beliefs. And uh-huh. I believe it all stems from ignorance. People are scared of what they don't understand. And uh-huh. when society starts to gain an understanding of these ideals, they begin to have sympathy and sometimes even empathy towards what they once feared. And that's when acceptance is possible. Yeah. Browning believes that making people more informed about the real vampires will encourage important conversations about how normalcy is defined by the mainstream. He says, I think what the vampires are doing is good because it helps put into perspective what our conception of normal is. Them doing what they're doing isn't a problem. It's our preconceived notion of what normal is that's the problem. I love that quote. Yeah. Love it. <clears throat> yeah. So over his five years of study, Browning found that most of the vampires were otherwise normal in the eyes of society. They mm-hmm. had spouses, friends, and jobs. Many of them had children from whom whom they hid their practice. While some have taken to wearing gothic attire and prosthetic things, other others have no physical markers to indicate their vampirism. They were normal people with routines, no different than everyone else. So Lore, the king of the New Orleans vampire community, and Murdicus, a co-founder of the Atlanta Vampire Alliance, clear up some of the misunderstandings of modern vampires. Firstly, it's worth noting that there are individuals who consider themselves to be contemporary vampires and ingest small quantities of blood. Nonetheless, there are many others who do not follow this practice and instead rely on various alternative methods to obtain energy. For instance, some modern-day vampires who refrain from drinking blood may opt for sexual experiences to acquire the energy they need. Okay. Many modern I dig it. Many modern vampires don't fit the typical mold that you see in media. These are regular folks who might hold day jobs like Lore, who pays the bills by working as a graphic designer, a DJ, and a jeweler. Or Murdicus, who's quite knowledgeable when it comes to vintage furnishings. So most human vampires are not part of the community because they worship Dracula. Members of this community are mainly attracted to one another for social reasons. And I was reading that a lot of them, when they were being interviewed and asked about, like, modern movies and books and stuff, a lot of them had no idea about a lot of these mainstream vampire media that's out there. So they're not, like, major fans of it. They're just normal people. (sighs) So Browning found throughout his research, many vampires are not really into the whole vampire thing, but the group rather consists of individuals who have a lot in common from their teenage days, such as a fascination with blood or energy and a need to feel accepted by like-minded people. Lore said the community gave him a sense of belonging that was akin to that of his own family. In addition to running a neat fang-making gig, Lore takes young vampires under his wing and offers guidance, a role he initially stumbled into but now enjoys. While he doesn't relish being known as a peacekeeper among his vampire peers, he frequently steps in to mediate between them and provide advice. According to Lore, the vampire community just wants to live in harmony and be 
valued as themselves. It doesn't matter what a person's ethnicity, gender, or any other characteristic may be, everyone is embraced and treated with esteem. Murdicus said he wants people to know that being a vampire involves a mix of physical, mental, and spiritual characteristics and that vampires can contribute meaningfully to society. Vampires usually have a reputation for being associated with sinister and terrifying activities like human sacrifice. However, this perception of the vampire subculture is far from the truth. In reality, this group is often misunderstood, and they completely condemn such gory acts. The two vampires made it clear that they don't appreciate being recognized solely for being vampires. Moreover, they defy the traditional image of vampires. Murdicus confessed that he neither adorns fangs nor wears gothic outfits, while Lore mentioned that he likes to combine stylish suits with 80s rock and roll when out at night. However, Lore likes to wear comfortable athleisure clothing while making fangs. So these people are just normal people. Just like you and me. <laughs> different, but... But the same. <laughs> yeah, different, but the same. <laughs> Um, Lauren Murdicus mentioned that their life as vampires does not take up all their time since they also have partners who are not vampires. They believe that being a vampire is simply a part of who they are and not their whole defining trait. Murdicus's vampire crew in Atlanta has become a tight-knit group, mainly consisting of older vampires. According to him, they lead a less exciting lifestyle compared to the Lores group. Instead of visiting the bustling downtown of New Orleans, Murdicus prefers to explore eateries, pubs, and cultural events. That sounds like my jam. <laughs> mm -hmm. In Ohio, vampires mostly feed psychically, whereas in New York, vampires have significant influence and are almost like political entities. Makes you wonder what political figures there are into vampirism. Yeah, honestly. As per Murdicus, each vampire group, be it a house, coven, or court, has its particular rituals and su subtle distinctions. Vampires from various parts of the U.S., each with their own unique backgrounds, want to protect and care for the families they have chosen. Even though they may argue and disagree like any other family, their conflicts are resolved by lore. Despite their differences, both lore and Murdicus have one common goal, achieving harmony among the vampires. Lore clarified that being united does not mean being the same. Rather, it means working together toward a shared objective. Despite their differences, they are all members of the same family and sometimes even appreciate each other's uniqueness enough to become affectionate towards one another. Aww. Yeah. Sounds like, it sounds like a beautiful group of people is what it sounds like to me. Yeah. They they found their family. Yeah, they have good hearts. And that's something you can definitely appreciate. Yes. According to surveys conducted by the Atlanta Vi Vampire Alliance, in 2015, there were at least 5,000 people in the U.S. who identified as real vampires. And there were about 50 living in New Orleans alone. There are probably a lot more today. That was 2015. And those are just <laughs> the ones that, you know known about. Mm -hmm. Joseph Laycock, a religious studies scholar, has a book out there called Vampires Today, The Truth About Modern Vampirism. And he examined teenagers, stay-at-home moms, grandmothers, and professionals that claim to feed off of other people's energy and every so often drink human blood. 
So these are like every walk of life. People are a part Mm. of this. He said that real vampires believe that their physical, mental, and emotional health will deteriorate if they don't feed, either on blood or energy. He says there are three types of real vampires, sanguinarian, psychic, and hybrids. So, you know, a mix between the two. Sanguinarians feed on very small amounts of human blood, generally uh, just a few drops, and most use a syringe or a lancet to feed. Psychic vampires feed by sipping life energy through a tentacle that's attached to their auras. So my tentacle on my aura would attach to your tentacle on your aura or just to your aura. I don't know. And then I would like suck your energy out apparently. Most vampires believe that it's okay to feed as long as they go to a place where there are a lot of people and they take only small amounts of energy. So I guess they don't like completely drain someone of their energy. So. Well, that's nice. Yeah. (laughs) They have ethical practices y'all they're ethical (laughs) venues where there's a lot of energy like a rock concert or church service are better feeding grounds a lot of vampires have consenting donors people who have lots of energy and don't mind giving some of it away there's also tantric feeding which involves sexual contact a lot of vampires say that ordinary people don't sustain them the really good energy comes from creative passionate types like artists or religious figures that makes sense yeah yeah browning says that symptoms of vampirism start to manifest around puberty when a person finds themselves drained of energy for no discernible reason they then discover that blood offers a remedy this is usually discovered by accident for example they might bite their lip and find that the blood that they ingest from that gives them a burst of energy. There was a charity event where the vampire community of of Nova came together to make food for the unhoused. So not only are they ethical, y'all, they're generous. Yeah, not many people. I mean, obviously, there's a ton of um, groups and stuff Mm -hmm. that are there to help the unhoused. But, you know, there needs to be more. (laughs) Yep. And the vampires are doing it. During that event, um, Browning decided to become a donor, uh, which is one who willingly gives to a vampire. And for Browning, a disposable scalpel was used to make a small prick on his back where blood was squeezed out. And the vampire licked up the blood, repeating the process a few times before cleaning Browning's back. And there are many reasons why someone might want to become a donor. Some of these reasons include wanting to provide nourishment for a close friend, uh, for financial compensation, and sometimes sexual favors. Browning found that many vampires partake in feedings two to three times a week, some of them feeling as if they can't control the urge and they, they have to have it. Sometimes when larger amounts of blood are donated, they refrigerate the blood and use it as an ingredient in other food or drink. Some claim to not be vampires by choice. This is really interesting to me. Uh, Take shot because we said that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Some vampires claim to not be vampires by choice. Kanisha, a woman who identifies as a blood drinker, told BBC that she isn't a vampire by choice. 
quote, many of us would rather not go through the cyclic symptoms and just be happy to live life like a normal person, end quote. Alexia, a vampire in the UK, stated, quote, if the cause could be identified, I would most certainly take a pharmaceutical pill, end quote. Most vampires have kept their condition from their doctors because they are wary of stigma. But those who are known to have disclosed their habits haven't been given a medical explanation. There are even vampires who have tried to stop drinking blood with dire consequences. When Kinesia went four months without feeding, she ended up in the emergency room with a low heart rate that would shoot up to 160 when she stood or walked around. This would Mm -hmm. be followed by a massive migraine and sometimes a loss of consciousness. Browning told of one vampire that without blood for nourishment was unable to function to the point where they were not even able to walk. And when this woman's husband came to see her in the hospital, she fed from him in her room and immediately felt better. Browning stated, None of the people I interviewed gave me any reason not to believe what they're saying. Being a gay man myself, it's not like people can take my blood and see that I'm gay, but that doesn't mean it's not real, end quote. Hmm, Yep. I can see that. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then Williams, a sociologist at Idaho State University, has conducted research on how vampire stigma has affected the quality of individuals' health care. In his studies, Williams found that there was no evidence of psychiatric issues in self-identified vampires. So in his research, there was no evidence to show that these people had a psychiatric issue. Like they're not just coming up with the stuff. They don't have a psychiatric diagnosis. So it feels like it's legitimizing their situation. It's in the very least not going against it. So on to some medical reasons for vampirism. So as you know, in the past, as Miranda stated, people had done some pretty silly things, such as digging up dead relatives and burning their hearts. They did this because of their lack of knowledge of germs and illnesses. As I said before, ignorance breeds fear. Fear makes you do stupid shit. Now, we know more about our health and how illness and diseases are spread. So let's look at some possible explanations for vampirism. Most of these explanations describe possible reasoning for the symptoms observed in the past, symptoms that were thought to have been identifiers of a vampire. So porphyria, it's known as a vampire disease. And I think Miranda mentioned this earlier Porphyria is a group of rare genetic blood disorders, so it's more than one disorder, Um, and they impact the production of hemoglobin, the iron-rich protein that transports oxygen in the blood. So it affects how your body is getting oxygen. Cutaneous pufforias leads to sensitivity to sunlight. Acute pufforias can lead to weakness, dementia, hallucinations, and paranoia. All of these symptoms sound like signs of vampiric possession. Gunther's disease, also known as erythropoietic perforia, garlic further degrades enzymes and destroys sufferers' red blood cells, while sunlight damages their skin. The buildup of toxic components may deposit in the bones and in the teeth, and that stains their teeth a red-brown color, which looks like they have been drinking blood. 
Okay, so this one's kind of off the wall, whatever. But I guess I could see back in the day how they could mm, connect this to vampires. But um, rabies. (laughs) (laughs) Insomnia, aversion to water in certain foods, such as garlic. Aggression, biting, bloody saliva, and a fear of one's reflection. Vampires are said to turn into bats, which are known to carry rabies. And rabies can be transmitted through a bite, similar to vampirism. And then we have pellagra. Pellagra is a deficiency of niacin and tryptophan, most commonly found in regions where corn is a dietary staple. So y'all don't eat too much corn. Oh, shucks. (laughs) That was so good. I didn't expect you to laugh so hard. <laughs> that was fantastic. And you even pulled out your Arkansas accent. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was good. Oh, so a little bit of corn, good. Lots of corn, bad. <laughs> okay, it's so most commonly, pellagra is most commonly, or pellagra is most commonly found in regions where corn is a dietary staple. These nutrients within corn are difficult for the body to absorb. The hallmarks of pellagra are the four Ds. Dermatitis, dementia, diarrhea, and if not treated, death. Sufferers avoid the sun because it causes their skin to get red and thick at first and then pale, thin, and scaly over time. Pelagrins may also display insomnia, aggression, and arithmetus glossitis, which is the inflammation of the tongue that may make the mouth appear bloody. Then we have leukemia, acute, fast-progressing leukemia. It starts in the bone marrow and affects the white blood cells, and the sufferers become pale, they lose weight rapidly, and they may bleed from their gums. Tuberculosis, like Miranda said, sufferers cough up blood, they become pale and thin, they waste away as if something is draining their life force. And it's very contagious. (laughs) Mm, Yes. And then there's just normal post-mortem decomposition. Many signs of vampirism are part of normal decay. So blood was sometimes found in the mouth of corpses, while blood oozing from orifices is a result of putrefaction. The dead were often buried face down to confuse them just in case they were a vampire. You know, they'd wake up and be like, oh, dear, where am I? I can't get up and kill people. (laughs) And gravity directed the blood down the throat into the mouth. So I used to work with people that have passed, and I can tell you that people that have passed, they do ooze. Stuff comes out of everywhere. Any hole in the body, stuff is coming out of it. I mean, it, it's just normal decomp is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, some corpses were said to have obviously fed throughout the night, as seen by their full bellies. Bodies bloat. bloat. Yes. They bloat after death, which explains how someone frail at the time of death could have the appearance of now being well fed. Mm-hmm. What about a corpse having fangs? That's definitely a vampire, right? Wrong. Gums receding. Bingo. Hair, teeth, and nails, they appear to grow as the flesh around them shrinks, giving teeth the appearance of fangs, a receding gum line. 
What about shrieks and groans? Decomposing lungs may expel gas with force. So when a stake was driven into a corpse, it makes sense that these sounds would come from it. And really, you don't even have to have a force, just gas alone building up in them. The first person that I ever did like their makeup on for a funeral, I was leaning over them. We were face to face, super close. And I heard, <sighs> and it was like air coming out of them. And <laughs> that would have creeped me out. For a split second, I was like, what? But I mean, I knew what it was. <laughs> and it, that's it's just the gas inside of the body. And it, you know, it comes mm-hmm. out, makes noise. What about a corpse that was buried long ago but still looks fresh? Yeah. Well, the rate of decay is based on numerous things. The simplest to mention are temperature, weather conditions. So has the body been buried or stored during a particularly cold time? Was there little to no moisture in the air at the time? What about insects? Were there less insects present where the body was stored? There are so many more factors for decomp, and this wasn't taken into account in the past. What if somebody was dug up and there were scratches on the inside of the lid? That's a sign of a vampire clawing their way out to feed, right? This was more likely to have been observed in the past as there were more people that were mistakenly buried alive. People want to get the fuck out. And that's what the claw marks are from. All right, then we have anemia. It's a disease of the blood in which the red cell count is extremely low. The symptoms of anemia include pale complexion, fatigue, fainting spells, shortness of breath, and digestive disorders, all indications of an inadequate oxygen supply. Therefore, your resident wino is a vampire. That must be why I prefer red over white. (laughs) Then we have catalepsy. Catalepsy is a dysfunction of the nervous system that causes a slowing down of the body's regulatory functions. Like when someone goes into a catatonic state, they are slowed down so much so that to the untrained eye, the person appears dead. Sufferers also lose voluntary muscle control, their bodies becoming rigid for sometimes days on end. They can see and hear but they cannot move or speak. Prior to the 20th century, catalepsy victims were often pronounced dead, and it is highly likely that many were buried alive, only to dig themselves out of their graves once they had awoken. A sight guaranteed to perpetuate the vampire myth. Guaranteed, like straight up. Yes, straight up, dog. (laughs) Then, (laughs) Then we have lupus. An autoimmune disease where white blood cells attack the body's own organs and tissues. And according to WebMD, about two-thirds of lupus patients, that's a lot, they are sensitive to ultraviolet rays, with their symptoms worsening whenever they are exposed to the sun or, in extreme cases, even artificial light. I've known a couple of people with lupus who couldn't be out in the sun long. Mm Mm-hmm. And lastly, we have the only modern-day explanation for why a human might have the urge to drink blood. 
and it's pretty much what was mentioned earlier. According to Wiki, clinical vampirism, more commonly known as Rainfield syndrome, is an obsession with drinking blood. Clinical vampirism is usually seen as an erotic obsession with blood. Ranfield syndrome more resembles an eating disorder involving the consumption of blood and or living animals. Neither clinical vampirism nor Ranfield syndrome have ever been listed as a valid diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, the DSM. So it's not an actual thing, y'all. The condition starts with a key event in childhood that causes the experience of a blood injury or the ingestion of blood to be exciting. After puberty, the excitement is experienced as sexual arousal. Throughout adolescence and adulthood, blood, its presence, and its consumption can also stimulate a sense of power and control. All of that kind of seems like bullshit to me. You cannot have that intense of an emotional feeling over something tiny and accidental like that. There'd have to be a lot of other trauma and messed up shit going on in your life if you want to chalk it up to something psychological. There's got to be another explanation out there. It's just not found yet. So I wrote, though there are not other modern day medical explanations for the need to ingest blood that does not completely negate the fact that it is in fact needed by some to function mentally and even physically. Think of the amount of diagnoses that we now have that used to be thought of as crazy or labeled as hysteria or thought to be made up. There is an explanation for everything. Our ignorance doesn't make something unreal. It makes it unknown for now. Oh, I like that. That is the end of my segment. Mm. That was a good segment. Dang. I'm sitting here enthralled. Like, okay. <laughs> Gotta be quiet. I have to, like, focus on the words, you know? Like, that was really good. I started kind of researching it just to kind of add a little bit of modernness modern day vampirism in there and then mm -hmm. I really got sucked in and I was like oh my god I love these people oh my god I want to meet these people they're amazing <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day you will I would be honored you live closer to New Orleans than I do yeah well that just means you have to come visit and then we're gonna go on a road trip <laughs> road trip to New Orleans yeah. I've always wanted to go to New Orleans it's really not that far mm. I always, when I was young, I wanted to go to Tulane University. Un Tulane University. What is that? It's a university in New Orleans. Oh, well, I guess I should have guessed that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining yes, us for our you. vampire episode. It was definitely a fun one that honestly surprised me on how little conspiracy theories and hauntings and more scientific slash, you know, logic-based. So I was surprised that there were any conspiracy theories. You blew my freaking mind, Miranda. <laughs> Again. I, I, I worked, like, I searched for a while and I'm like, what the heck, you know? Like, I couldn't really find much. So, you know, I, I went with what I did find. And then it... <laughs> yeah. There wasn't a lot of new stuff yeah. that not everyone's yeah, mentioning, exactly. you know? So, you know, I just kind of did what I did, and I loved your take on it. Oh, my gosh, so good. 
So you're awesome, and I'm awesome, and we're awesome. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Everything. Thing is awesome. <laughs> Everything's cool when you're part of a team. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, and as always, if you have any interesting stories that you would like us to share on our podcast, please email them to witchinandwhiten at gmail dot com. That is W I T C H N A N D W I N E N at gmail dot com. <laughs> And don't forget to check out our Facebook because I don't think we have any photos to share for this episode, but there are quite a lot and some videos from our past episodes. So you can kind of keep up with what we're talking about and post what you want to post. And yeah. yeah, but come on, guys, send us your stories. We would love to share them. It doesn't have to be about ghosts or vampires. It could be about creatures, aliens, conspiracies, whatever. Anything. We will talk about all of it. Yes. And don't forget to like and subscribe and follow and do all of those nifty little tricks. Rate and <laughs> review. And because I think that when you rate, I'm not sure about reviewing, but when you rate, I think that helps get our podcast up on the list for people to find when they're, they are in the search engine. So it helps get us out there. We're pretty new. So we need you and your help. And don't feel blue. <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out what rhymed with help, but I don't think kelp <laughs> would fit here. Eat some kelp. It's healthy for your <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, okay. Good night, guys. We will talk to you next time. Good night. Good night. Sleep tight, don't let the monsters bite.